This is Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. I'm Dr. John Nixon, Sr., back with you again on this episode 14 as we continue writing our sermon on the Sabbath and creation, taking it through steps two to five of our five-step process. We completed step one last time. One of the aspects of step one of the five-step process, listening to the text, is to listen to the text in its wider context, the verses that come before and the ones that come after. We haven't been doing that consistently in our podcast just because of the time aspect, but when we, when we looked at chapter 2 last week, we would also, in a broader context, look back at chapter 1, ahead to chapter 3, etc., as we listen to the text. But we didn't take time for that, but I did, however, on my own, look back and listen to Genesis chapter 1 before going to step 2. And I want to share with you some of the things that I found there in Genesis 1 that I think are important. First, I noticed how God set up the days in the beginning. When you read Genesis chapter 1, you notice that God measures the days by evening to morning, not midnight to midnight the way we do. As you look at Genesis 1, you notice that each of the six days ends with this phrase, and the evening and the morning were. First day, second day, third day, etc. This means sunset starts the new day, not midnight, not sunrise. Evening comes, then morning follows. That's why the Sabbath is observed from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, so-called Saturday. Now, it doesn't matter as much in the other days of the week, but when the Sabbath comes, we want to reckon time the way God reckons time. And so Sabbath is observed sunset to sunset for that reason. That's how the days were created in the beginning. This also reveals this uh, chapter 1. A noteworthy fact, though it's obvious, that God established the seven-day cycle when he made the world. He chose six days to create. Seventh day of the rest, he could have done it another way. He, he could have created the world in three days, in four days, in one day. But he chose this cycle. Six days of work, one day of rest. He established the cycle. It came from God. Notice also, I noticed that, that in chapter 1, the humans were created on the sixth day of creation, so that their first full day was the Sabbath, since sunset sixth day is the beginning of the Sabbath. We'll see the significance of this later on as we go along. Now, I wanted to go on and then next up and treat the text. I wanted to look at how other sources inform my understanding what I've been reading so far as I've tried to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. What has God revealed to other thinkers and readers before me that they've written down somewhere that I can access? That's our step two, treating the text. I found some interesting things. First of all, one writer looked at the six days of creation as a combination of both designing and filling by God. The first three days... God designs, showing his architecture, the first day light, the second day sky, the third day water and land, God designs. The next three days, God fills what he designed, showing his artistry. 
Sun, moon, and stars to fill space. Fishes and birds to fill the sea and sky. Animals and humans to fill the earth. On the seventh day, he combines these two. He both designs and fills. He designs a rest, seventh day, and then he fills it with his presence, making it holy. I like that description. I might use that to go through my sermon. I saw also, as I compared sources, uh, this word Sabbath in the Hebrew Shabbat means to cease or to desist or to rest. So we see the same central idea we found in the New Testament text. Sabbath equals rest. The question is, what's the meaning of that rest in the context of creation? We saw it in redemption when we did our Matthew 12 passage, but now in creation, what does that mean? I want to uncover that as we go along. I notice also, uh, you remember when we were listening to the text in chapter 2, we noticed these three words that were used to describe Sabbath. The Bible says that on the Sabbath, God rested, that he blessed it, and that he sanctified it. We were looking for spiritual meaning in these words. So we have rest. This, um, this one scholar says that in the Hebrew context here in Genesis 2, this rest means not that God takes a rest, but that he creates a rest. The Sabbath, then, is a part of creation, not a break from creation. God does not recuperate as someone who is tired. Instead, he creates a rest, symbolizing his presence by means of time rather than by an object. A sanctuary in time, the Sabbath is. This is important because right away it shows us that there's a difference between the Sabbath rest and the rest we take on a day off or on a vacation. It's not what this is talking about. This is a spiritual rest. A rest as creation, not a rest as, as a, a break from creation. A sanctuary in time. The Sabbath rest. It's a nice concept. Then we come to blessed. Placed his benediction upon the other six days are not said to be blessed. The seventh day is singled out in this way. Notice also that it is the only day God names. A signal also that it's different from the other days. All the other days God calls by number. First day, second day, third day. Only when he comes to the seventh day does he give it a name and he calls it Sabbath. Now the common names of the days that we know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc., they did not come from God. The Romans gave those names based on the sun, the moon, and the five known planets at the time, all of which they worshipped. In some cases, the Roman names were later anglicized, so it doesn't really fit with the Latin, but it's still the same idea of worshipping heavenly bodies. Sun, moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Jupiter, excuse me, Venus, and Saturn. Those are the seven days as we know them. In the Bible, one, two, three, four, five, six, Sabbath. Now notice that in the common parlance, the seventh day, which God named for rest, Sabbath, the Romans changed it to Saturday for Saturn. In other words, on the calendar we commonly follow, the Sabbath is eliminated as a day of homage to the Creator, replaced by something the Creator created, a planet, a thing instead of a person. But God distinguished the seventh day, blessed it, and called it by a name. 
the name he gave Sabbath. Then there's that word sanctified, to make holy or to set apart. It's a similar idea to blessed, but this time the emphasis is on being set apart from the other days. I noticed a companion text there, Exodus 31, 13, where the Bible says, Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Get what's being said here. This is interesting. Uh, Exodus 31, 13. First of all, the text is saying that the Sabbath designated by God as a sign between him and his people. When we observe the seventh-day Sabbath as God created it, we remember God as creator, our connection to him as those he has created. The Sabbath is a safeguard, then, against naturalism, nature is all there is, and atheism, there is no God. When the Sabbath is remembered in its original context, we can never land on this scientific idea that there's nothing outside of nature, that there is no supernatural. Nor could we ever settle for the idea that there is no God, because the Sabbath connects us to God as creator and as sanctifier. That Exodus 31, 13 companion text brings us in there. Notice this also, the same text. It also says the Sabbath is a sign to remind us of God's identity. Who? The one who makes us holy. God. The sanctifier. The Sabbath reminds us of that. The holy one. Our God. Thought that was pretty good. Then as we go further into chapter 2, beyond verse 3, now the humans come into play. And we discover a connection between the Sabbath and the humans that leads us to Christ. As we go into the narrative further, the story returns to the sixth day to describe it in more detail, what happened that day. You know how the story goes. It breaks down how... God made the man from the dust of the ground, etc., etc. So we came into being an important connection is made between us and the Sabbath. And when we make that connection, that's where the Sabbath then in creation leads us to Jesus Christ. Let me show you. First notice this. The Sabbath is not the crowning act of creation. This is a common mistake Sabbath keepers make. Jesus said, Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This means the humans are greater than the Sabbath. It was made as a gift for them. A gift is no good if it oppresses the recipients. The Sabbath was made for us, not against us. The Sabbath is meant to make us happy, to bring us closer to God. We're the crowning act of creation, not the Sabbath. The world was made for the human beings, male and female, made in the image of God. And the Sabbath is meant to bring us closer to God and to grow our faith in Him. Okay. So here's where the importance of the timing of our creation on the sixth day comes into play. Remember this now. God's operating on a timetable of His own making. Time is for us, not for Him. He uses it for his glory and for his self-revelation in the realm of the creatures he's made. He himself is not a time-bound being. So notice now, the first man and woman created on the sixth day. At sunset, the Sabbath began. Therefore, their first full day, evening and the morning were, their first full day is a day of rest, the Sabbath. They come into the world resting 
in God's finished work in which they had no part. Adam and Eve rested before they worked. And we have found Christ in creation. Hear me now. There's a mirror effect of creation between creation and redemption that we see in Christ, and the sign of them both is the seventh-day Sabbath. The rest of the Sabbath in creation anticipates the rest of the Sabbath in redemption. Remember Romans 13, 8? Jesus there is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Some translations say from the creation of the world. The Lamb of God was already slain at creation. But wait, there was no sin at creation. You say, why was there a slain lamb? That's exactly the point. God made provision for redemption from sin even before there was any such thing as sin to be redeemed from. As one writer put it, before there was sin, there was already a Savior slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, while God was on his hands and knees, shaping the man from the dust of the ground. He, in his infinite wisdom, his timelessness, already knew that the hands he was forming would one day fasten the crown of thorns to his head. God knew what was going to happen. But God had a secret nobody else knew. He, in his timelessness, God made provision for the prospect of sin before it happened, so as to bring good out of evil. He knew there'd be a price for creating us. Creation was at the cost of redemption. To have us, he would have to make us twice, once by forming us, once by reforming us, then we could be his forever. God knew this. So the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, a provision for sin even before sin came. That's revealed in creation. God's powerful, redeeming hand of love. That's why Adam and Eve didn't drop dead the moment they ate the forbidden fruit. They should have done. God said, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Why didn't they die? Because they were already covered by the blood. The lamb was already slain from the foundation of the world. So they didn't lose their lives immediately. Though spiritually they died immediately. So now you see the importance, beloved, uh, of us for us to observe God's Sabbath day and keep it as a memorial. Creation and redemption are linked together in Christ through the sign of the seventh-day Sabbath. When Jesus dies on the sixth day and rests in the tomb on the seventh day, he's matching the pattern of redemption to the pattern of creation. God finishes creation on the sixth day and rests the seventh day. Christ finishes redemption on the sixth day. He cries out from the cross, it is finished, right? Tetelestai, tetelestai, it is finished. He finishes on the sixth day, bows his head in death, rests in the tomb on the seventh day. Redemption matching the pattern of creation. The sixth day, the seventh day. God brings us into being. God rescues us from destruction. And the Sabbath links them both as the symbol of rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty good, isn't it? God created the world on a certain cycle and then saved the world on the same cycle. It was his timing 
of his own choosing. He's both creator and redeemer as God, and the Sabbath is the sign of them both. Now, this is important. A little caveat here. This is important to keep in mind. The Sabbath itself is not the source of redemption. It's the sign of it. We're not saved by keeping the Sabbath. That would be salvation by works. Never make the mistake, beloved, of substituting the sign for the thing it signifies. Of substituting the symbol for the reality. The rest of the Sabbath, the rest of the Sabbath has exactly the opposite purpose of works righteousness. It is to remind us that salvation can never come by our works, but only by resting by faith in Christ's already finished work. Work to which we have made no contribution. Just as Adam and Eve made no contribution to creation, we make no contribution to redemption. It is ours by resting by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Sabbath keeping doesn't make us holy. The holiness of the Sabbath is the holiness of the Creator, who is also our Redeemer, the Lord of the Sabbath. We partake of His holiness by faith as we rest in Him on His appointed day. This is the rest of righteousness by faith. Oh, yeah. Okay. Here's our Sabbath in creation. Some good things there. We rest in Jesus and his finished work every day. We know that. But he set aside a particular day, a special day, as a reminder. And now we see the importance of it when we rest in him, when we take notice of it. Set everything aside and take notice of it on the seventh day. This sanctuary in time... This monument to God's finished work connects us by faith to Christ, who is both creator and redeemer. The seventh day, his sign of both. Bless his name. Now, there's much more to be had in both chapters 1 and 2, and even 3, relative to the Sabbath and creation, but... One sermon can only hold so much, so I'm going to stop there. Remember this also. This is important. The richer and more challenging the content of the sermon, the shorter the sermon should be. Let me say that again. You know, content can be of different uh, depths. It's all important. It's all biblical. But sometimes a sermon can be a little deeper, a little richer, depending on the subject matter, to take your thoughts deeper. You know, to, to make you look more introspectively. Sometimes sermons have that, more, that kind of quality to it. And when they do, the sermon itself should be shorter, not longer. Because people need to be able to digest profound ideas. As we teach them simply, memorably, and with repetition as needed. Remember, preaching that teaches. So, sermons like this should be kept shorter. So people have a chance to digest them to ruminate on them, to to walk out to the car thinking about them, on the ride home, the walk home, during the week. So this is a sermon where we kind of shorten our intake and then put it together for for presentation to God's people. I'm going to stop right there with with the treating of the text. I'm going to go to step four now. I'm going to organize our notes into a coherent form. I think for this sermon, I am going to use a hybrid form. I want to take my notes, organize them into a form so they can be delivered 
uh, as a sermon that people can follow. I'm going to use a hybrid. I'm going to mix narrative with topical for this sermon. Not proof texting, but topical. I'm going to build up uh, to my main text, Genesis 2, by rehearsing in narrative form the events of Genesis 1. Right? I'm going to do that. And then when I get to Genesis 2, I'm going to follow topically based on some of the things that we've studied. I'm going to find an interesting way to introduce it. I think for the title I'm going to use, I'm going to title it The Perfect Sabbath. Going back to creation, the original Sabbath was the perfect Sabbath. I'm going to use that title. Here's my thematic sentence. The Sabbath in creation presents rest as a defining element in the relationship between God and humanity. That can be developed. The Sabbath in creation presents rest as a defining element in the relationship between God and humanity. See where I'm going with that? I'm going to tie that rest of creation to the rest of redemption as I build this sermon. It's going to be my theme. So I'm going to start with the introduction. Then I'm going to go to Genesis 1 and read the first five verses. Those first five verses take us through in the beginning to and the evening, evening and the morning were the first day. I'm going to read those first five verses, and then I'm going to narrate the first six days of creation. Some kind of interesting, creative way. Not as a news report, but as in the form of a story. I may even use some poetry here. Maybe, how about James Weldon Johnson? When he got that poem in creation, maybe, maybe even bring some excerpts from his poem in here in this first part. Introduction. Using chapter one as a springboard into chapter two. I'm going to do it that way. Then, when I get to my main text, uh, I start zeroing in on the Sabbath. I divide it up this way topically. I'm going to talk about the, the distinction of the seventh day natural the distinction of the seventh day spiritual, and the distinction of the seventh day ultimate. So I'm going to break it up. On the natural one, distinction of the seventh day natural, I'm going to talk about how God designs and fills, like we just read about. He designs and fills on the six days, and then both designs and fills on the seventh day. Fills on the seventh day. Natural distinction between the others. And then also how God names the seventh day, but only numbers the other days. Another distinction between the days in nature, a natural context. The distinction of the seventh day, natural. I'll talk about the distinction of the seventh day, spiritual. Here's where I'll go to my Genesis 2, 1 to 3 verses where it says, God rested, blessed, sanctified. I'm going to break that down. I'll talk about the blessed part that we just talked about and what that means. I'll bring in the sanctification, the holiness of God part to show the spiritual distinction of the seventh day from the other days. And then I'll end with the distinction of the seventh day ultimate. Here's where I'm going to show how the ultimate meaning of the seventh day comes into into view in the creation when the humans are created. Because the Sabbath was made for man. That's what Christ said, right? So we see it in its ultimate once we come on the scene. Now we see its purpose. And the first thing we notice is how, as we just talked about, how the man and woman come into a world and the first thing they do is rest. The ultimate purpose of the Sabbath is fellowship with God. The ultimate meaning is resting in God's finished work. I can take that rest then and tie creation to redemption as we just did, talking about being born in creation and reborn in redemption God's finished work on both ends. He finished creation and brought us in. He finished redemption and then saved us at the cross. Those two things brought together 
symbolized, memorialized by the seventh-day Sabbath. The rest of the Sabbath means resting in God's created work and his redemptive work. That's where I'm going with that sermon. I can conclude and appeal by saying the original Sabbath of creation, before there was any sin, the perfect Sabbath stands for the rest of faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, previewed in Eden, fulfilled at the cross. I like that. The rest of the Sabbath means resting by faith in Christ and his righteousness. It's previewed in Eden, right? Lamb slain from the foundation of the world and then fulfilled at the cross. It is finished to tell us that. There's a sermon. I think that's a good one. I like that. I'm going to use that. Now, before I close out, since we have a little more time, let me share something with you I've just been ruminating on the last couple of days. I took some notes to remind me what I want to share with you. I was noticing how, in his preaching ministry, how Christ so often split the crowd of his listeners. They would listen to him, listen to the same sermon, all of them, and they would come to opposite conclusions. Some would say he's a devil, some would say he's a prophet. Sometimes he'd preach and they would say, this is a man of God. And then others would say, pick up stones and let's try to kill him. He always had this split reaction when he preached. Jesus did. Many believed and repented. Many also had negative reactions. And that tells us something about the nature of biblical preaching. Preaching that is Christ-centered will invoke the same kind of results that Jesus got when he preached. Some people will be against us. Some will be for us when we preach the truth. The truth always divides. And it's not for us to try and change the truth to avoid the division. We don't have that authority. We don't have that right. We don't know the success of the message. We only know how to put it out there and the Holy Spirit do his work. Remember this. The the Bible says the priests were among Christ's greatest enemies. But after Pentecost, the Bible says, many priests then joined the Christian movement. After Christ was gone, death, resurrection, ascension, then the same priest, many of them, the Bible says, joined the Christian movement. So we don't know. Those who may be against the word today might be converted tomorrow. Our task is just put the word out there. Let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Some will receive, some will reject, some won't know what to do. We put it out there. Once it's out there, the Holy Spirit takes it. He applies it to the hearts of those who are hearers, those who will listen, those whose hearts are open, and the Holy Spirit will take one little crack in the door. He'll slide that word in that little crack and get it to that person's heart because he's always trying to do the same thing. He's always bringing people to Jesus Christ. That's what God's word does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So we put the word out there. We put it out there. Let the Holy Spirit take charge and apply it to the believer's lives. The results are in God's hands. Expect to have a split reaction to your preaching if your preaching's biblical. Put it out there. Let the Holy Spirit do the rest. It's his word, and he always attends it. Okay, just a thought, preachers, thought I'd share with you before we sign off. Next time, I'm going to do another doctrinal sermon presented through Jesus Christ. I might do the law. I'm not sure I'm thinking about the law. I might do something on stewardship kind of been mulling it around. I'll decide and let you know. But next week, another doctrinal sermon presented through Jesus Christ. Okay, that's enough for this time. So let's keep those things in mind. Preachers, 
Remember also, keep humble and be faithful. Just one, two, three.